Welcome to the Bonhoeffer Podcast, a podcast about the life, theology, and practice of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm your host, Corey Tuttle, and my guest today is Dr. Diane Rayson. Dr. Rayson holds a PhD in theology from the University of Newcastle. She lectures in several universities following a career of public health and social policy in Australia and the Pacific, and is the author of Bonhoeffer and Climate Change, Theology and Ethics for the Anthropocene. Dr. Rayson, thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Corey. This is going to be great. Um, Obviously, we've probably chatted for a half hour already, (laughs) getting to know each other, but um, I I think uh, we met uh, at the, the Bonhoeffer meeting, I think last December, I remember, and then this reading group that we're in right now with uh, Mike Mawson has been awesome just to get to know you and chat. It's been great. Sure thing. I mean, everybody knows who Corey Tuttle is and the, oh and the one of her podcasts. So it's a real thrill for me to, to uh, be interviewed today. And it's, and it's great to chat, isn't it? It's always good to talk about Bonhoeffer. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, that's still, uh, we were just talking about that. It's still weird to sort of um, come into a room of, kind of all your your heroes and uh <clears throat> they are like hey hey we know who you are um still still weird but um exciting nonetheless uh so yeah this is great um we've chatted a little bit i kind of know a little bit of your story but for people who are listening to the podcast who maybe don't know you i was wondering if you could kind of tell us about your journey to academia theology and how you discovered bonhoeffer and got kind of involved in all this yeah well it's a really um sort of serendipitous journey I guess I um, had never really heard of Bonhoeffer when I started theology I came to theology um, as a second or third career to be honest I've spent a lot of time working in public health and social policy um, in Australia in the Northern Territory with Indigenous communities and uh, in the Pacific and Vanuatu and Papua New Guinea. So, um, and that's always been an expression of my Christianity that, you know, you, um, you deliver the works, you know, you do good um, as, as your way of preaching the gospel, I, I suppose. Um, and then just my life circumstances, I found myself um, living quite remotely on a farm and um, getting my children through high school. And I became increasingly cross about the state of the world in terms of climate change and what I perceive to be a real lack of church leadership in that mm. space. Um, and for me as a Christian, it just seems so obvious that this was like the seminal issue of our time. And um, we as Christians and um, more broadly people of faith um, should be right at the front of that discussion because we have the theological tools to do that. And so it seemed to me if, um, if the church wasn't going to stand up, then I should probably go and do a PhD in theology and, <laughs> and participate in that conversation. And so um, because I didn't have an undergraduate in, in theology, I'd done a master's of public health and, and some other degrees. Um, I started off with a master's in theology and um, quite early on, there was um, an award um, to write an essay on, on Bonhoeffer, um, there was a small scholarship and it was called the Flecktime Scholarship offered um, in the name of Julius Flecktime, who'd been a colleague of Bonhoeffer's at the University of Berlin um, in the war period. He was a law scholar um, who was Jewish and uh, died in the Holocaust. And so 
a descendant of his is actually um, an Anglican priest in this area. And he inherited um, Flectime superannuation in, in the 90s when, when these monies became available as a result of um, a legal case in Germany. He inherited some money and so decided to put that money toward a Bonhoeffer scholarship. And so I thought, well, I could write an essay about Bonhoeffer, surely. <laughs> and in doing so, um, my concerns about climate change and, uh, and Bonhoeffer's concerns about um, the world around him just, just coalesced and it seems such an obvious connection that I should um, turn my attention um, to Bonhoeffer in order to solve my questions about climate change. Wow, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> um, you mentioned that you became increasingly concerned about climate change. That's, that's sort of, uh, it was like the alarm bells ringing and that sort of thing. Was there anything that's sort of like a catalyst to that? Is there any moments that you remember, anything that you read or any conversations that you have that, that really sort of sparked your interest in, in learning more about climate change or, or that sort of thing? Um, actually, there wasn't for me. Um, there's just been a looming um, disquiet about um, things not going well. And I suppose even um, <laughs> back in the 80s, when I was in Vanuatu, um, which is um, for people um, outside of this region, um, a small island state in the Pacific, um, at that time, there were concerns about the degradation of the uh, the coral reefs because of um, different species coming in and I remember thinking then boy you know this world is really a lot more fragile than we sort of take it to be um, so I've had just you know I'm just a regular person I'm not a greenie I'm not a hippie I'm just a regular person watching things change around me watching uh, winters get warmer in Australia um, so the seminal moment actually for me didn't come until just a year ago when Australia went through um, what's been called the black summer of bushfires. But of course, it, it actually started in the winter before that. Um, and so on my farm um, north of Sydney in, in the east coast of Australia, um, for months, we watched the forests around us burn slowly, um, but progressively until the inferno of November through to uh, January 2019-20, um, uh, just before the pandemic started. Um, and going through that bushfire experience and actually wondering um, at three o'clock in the morning, on the morning of my birthday, actually, wondering if I would live uh, that day, um, made it very real, as it is for so many people around the world whose um, homes are being subsumed by rising seas, whose crops are failing, um, who are suffering um, political unrest, um, food insecurity. You know, these things are real now. Even, even as we're speaking, Corey, the people in um, the Pacific Northwest who are in the middle of um, heat waves and bushfires and extreme loss of life, um, it makes it real. You know, if, if, people, if people aren't converted to the notion of um, climate change now, then they only have to look out the window. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, I'm, I mentioned this off air, but I lived in the Pacific Northwest for a long time. And I mean, I was just there last week. And as I was leaving, it was sort of like, oh, here comes fire season. Uh, like for the past three summers, you know, I have four-year-old daughters 
born in May and then right into right through the summer, you know, the, the fire started in BC and other parts of Washington state. And it's weird because, you know, I was a poor college student. You have uh, these window air conditioning units and, you know, premature newborn babies that, and like the news says, don't go outside because the air is yeah. so bad. Like it just smells like a bonfire constantly. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, and, and, and we're all experiencing um, some, some of the ramifications now of, of global warming and climate disruption. Um, we know that those most affected are um, the poorest and already the most vulnerable um, internationally. So the poorest countries are going to be most affected, but even within wealthy countries, the disparity between the rich and the poor means that um, people who are already vulnerable um, are going to suffer the most from um, the effects of climate change. So there are some just really foundational issues of justice um, when it comes to how we respond to, to the challenge of climate change. Definitely. And you wrote this book that covers, from a theological perspective, this topic quite extensively. Um, your book is entitled Bonhoeffer on Climate Change, Theology and Ethics for the Anthropocene. Um, for see, I, I have been nervous about saying that word. Just that I would, I would nail it. Um, <laughs> oh, you did. Did I get it right? Well. <laughs> see, uh, people often, you know, forgive me because I'm Australian, and so maybe it's just an accent thing. So you know, I think there's there's uh, plenty of ways to say the Anthropocene, and it's really just um, a tag for describing the impact of humans on the Earth's systems. So. Um, eras and epochs and ages with, uh, you know, describing the timeline of the earth are always um, labelled based on the earth's crust. Um, so you have different eras based on what's going on in the earth's crust. And the fact that we um, ostensibly name this the Anthropocene is really describing the influence of one species, that is the humans, their influence on the crust of the earth so that in a future era uh, there will always be this layer in the earth's crust that um, that is a marker of human influence and that that influence in the crust is things like plastic which will always be there which will never be removed um, and uh, nucleotides so um the effects of, of uh, nuclear processes um, and other man-made synthesized elements, which are now evident in the Earth's crust and will always be there. So it's a geological term, but it's also a political term that uh, describes the disruption that the human species is doing to the entire Earth system. So we know with climate change, with global warming, the amount of carbon that we're putting into the atmosphere has historically, for the last 150 years, uh, the effect of that has been heating of the Earth and most of that heating has been absorbed by the world's oceans. So we've, we've kind of had this window where we've been chucking all this carbon into the atmosphere. The world has been heating, but it's been being balanced out by that heat being absorbed into the oceans. Mm. We've reached that tipping point now where the oceans can no longer continue to heat. Um, and the ocean 
the, the heat in the ocean is now driving the weather systems. So that's why we're seeing the doming of heat uh, over the Pacific Northwest. That's why we're seeing a slowing of the jet stream instead of spinning smoothly around the, the top of the globe. It's becoming um, bumpy. And I know you're not filming this, but my hand is going up and down like the Loch Ness Monster um, because the jet stream is getting really messy and getting stuck. And so you're getting doming of, of heat. So there are many, many um, regular weather systems which are being disrupted because the Earth system can no longer cope with the added heat which has been um, tossed into it because, because of the carbon we've put into the atmosphere from um, industrialization to now. So when we talk about the Anthropocene, we talk about, you know, from 1950, um, you know, could be the marker with the great acceleration where um, productivity increased, population increased, um, or some people talk about the start of the Industrial Revolution, or indeed the start of um, you know, human civilization, but wherever you mark it, um, it's really to draw attention to the significance of the human impact on the earth system, which has never occurred before. Well, that was a great summary of everything that has happened up until now. I guess my next question for you is, where is this going? Um, so if, if these are the current problems of affecting weather systems, creating injustice and uh, death and fires and you know, rising tides. Where is this, where is this going? Um, what's, what's the future look like if, uh, if, if we can't stop it? I, I don't know. You said we're kind of past the tipping point. So, I mean, what do we have to look forward to? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a bad story, but it's not a, um, <laughs> it, it's still redeemable at this point. If if only if only we would uh, not pull out more coal from the ground and burn it, or pull out more oil from the ground and and burn it, um, it is redeemable. Uh, that there's a tiny and slim chance, um, but it seems to me quite an unlikely chance. Um, our, our, our last hope really is November at the COP meeting in Glasgow. Um, if, if our world leaders um, truly decide to commit to decarbonising all of the economies in developed countries um, and increasingly in developing countries, um, if they committed to that and started that process now so that we did achieve net zero by 2050, then there is a hope that we could limit warming or heating to 1.5 degrees. Um, at the moment, uh, we're on a trajectory to between four and eight degrees heating, and that makes much of the planet unlivable for humans, um, let alone... Um, disrupting all of the um, ecosystems and the impact that that will have on other species. So we know we've already entered the sixth mass extinction event in the world's history. Mm -hmm. And this is the only extinction event that's been caused by one species and that one species is us. Um, and once we start losing our fellow species, we, uh, <laughs> we spiral out of control because then we, we lose this, what's called the services in the ecology um, mm. to humans. So water, um, air, <laughs> food. Yeah. yeah. So it doesn't look good, but it is not 
impossible. Um, and what is required is for um, social movements to rise up and demand this of our political systems. Um, and I think that's that's really what sort of got up my go, like where is the church in this conversation? Why aren't we demanding so much more for the sake of um, the vulnerable in our own populations and the vulnerable populations around the world? Mm -hmm. So how does, I, I guess as a theologian, what's, the, what's your work like? How, how does theology and being a theologian going hand in hand with addressing climate change? I mean, this is sort of a softball question, but you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, it operates on a few levels, doesn't it, Corey? Like um, there's our own, our own faith journeys and how we, how we continue to worship and love a God um, despite the circumstances around us. Um, so how do we maintain um, our own faith? Um, and, you know, Bonhoeffer gives us clues there in terms of, you know, the arcane disciplines, just, just keeping those practices alive that draw us into the mystery of God. Um, at another level, there's how we engage with our own church communities and um, still be a beacon of hope for people despite what's going on in the world. Um, and then at another level, there's how we organise ourselves um, to operate in that political space. So engaging, I mean, I got myself elected to the General Synod of the Anglican Church in Australia, which is really not my thing. But if that's where, if that's where I'm required to go in order to enact some of this political um, engagement, then, then that's what we all need to do is step up and um, infiltrate all of the political spaces that we can in order to demand more of our of our political systems so there's that real um activism um space i mean sometimes i talk about you know me showing up to environmental activism you know events and you know and i'm the very sort of ordinary looking middle-aged person in this space with a lot of young people um who who kind of wonder well what am I doing here? Well, it, it's going to require all of us to be here in that space. Mm -hmm. um, whoever you are, you know, you don't have to be a hippie. You don't have to be green. You don't have to be um, left wing. In, in fact, it's really important for all of the normal, ordinary mums and dads, regular folks in the middle who up until now have never been politically active to actually um, recognise that. The climate crisis uh, takes us beyond normal. Yeah, that's great. Um, your book is also quite a bit about Bonhoeffer. Um, so I, I want to get into that a little bit and how this sort of speaks to all of this. Um, your, I haven't told you this, but your uh, chapter on Bonhoeffer's Christology is, uh, if someone asked me what Bonhoeffer's Christology was, I would just say, read this chapter. Like oh. out of all the things I've, I've read for all of these interviews, it blew me away. I was just like, oh, there's, you know, I, I expected a lot of, a lot of ethics, a lot of, and then to hop in and be like, oh, I'm underlining all this for my own dissertation. Thank you. <laughs> so <laughs> it was, it's great. Um, so I wanted to unpack that a little bit because it, it was so great. And I, I feel like I would be missing an opportunity to not speak about it a little. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Corey. That's the thing about Bonhoeffer, right? So people, 
you know, often look to him for, for ethics. Um, and, you know, his life witness obviously is, is the beacon of that. And he's a model and, um, you know, his ethics, the work, the ethics is, is just so um, intense and, and rich and beautiful. But actually, it's all driven by his Christology, in my opinion, that um, you, you, you find his Christology just infiltrating all of his other works. Even, you know, I know you and I, um, with some others, are looking at Act and Being now. And, um, you know, I, I would argue that um, if you take the Christology out of it, you know, everything else is, is falling apart. So I was really pleased to be able to dive really deeply into um, the Christology lectures, especially, as well as, you know, Creation and Fall and some of the other um, more obscure essays that, um, that really speak into um, how we engage with the physical world around us. But Boniface Christology is just so, um, you know, it's so real, isn't it? Like he, he's, he's always talking about Christ in the three forms of, um, of um, incarnate, crucified and risen. And you can't, can't take one, you know, without the others, you know, it all falls apart. Um, he, he talks about um, the difference between creator and creation and yet the imminence of Christ, you know, holding it together and seeing Christ um, in the faces of those around us. Um, and, you know, I've taken that, I've, I've looked to extending that to wondering what does that mean for seeing Christ in the, in the rest of creation around us when we look into the faces of, um, you know, the animals or the, the other species around us as well. How do we see Christ um, in those faces or in those bodies or in those landscapes. Um, you know, the story that, that Bonhoeffer um, pulls apart in Creation and Fall of Adam uh, calling to the animals um, really makes me wonder about, you know, this, this propensity we have toward naming and classifying and kind of identifying um, the other species. And yet, you know, maybe Adam was just calling the animals maybe it wasn't naming in the in the sense of identifying but rather calling out to them in their own voices uh, or listening to the voices of the animals to to interpret something about um, those other species to find them not suitable as partners but um, but you know the story doesn't reject the notion of Adam interacting with these species in in some other way um sorry i've got i've gotten a bit away from christology there but you know boniface creation and fall is just so rich and uh mm. and you know I'd, I'd probably take that away with me um on my desert island if i was forced to only choose one we'll get there one, we'll get there <laughs> one one piece of writing um but I feel like um, for all of us who are interested in, in Bonhoeffer, starting with the Christology lectures is a really rich place to start. Um, and, and Bonhoeffer even says, you know, we're not, we're not asking what is Christ. Um, the question is, who is Christ? And even asking that question is the first step of faith. Mm -hmm. And that, that's almost been a little sort of tagline for me, that um, even asking this question is a step of faith, even if uh, we're nowhere near um, 
coming into sort of a, an acknowledgement of, of who Christ is, just just leaving that that option open is, is that first stage. Hmm. You also talk about uh, in that aspect of Christology, um, just in the way that faith works at Bonhoeffer's thought, there's lots of lordship language of uh, obeying. I think about pretty much all of discipleship is about that. Um, there's in your book, you have this section about uh, several sections about uh, dominion and self-assertion. Um, so like, as I'm thinking about uh, Christ being the present Lord and us being the, the willing follower disrupted out of our own self-assertion and uh, how do, how does self-assertion and dominion relate to sort of human creaturely life and also just uh, in relation to climate change? Like what, yeah. How, how does thinking about those things relate and how we should live? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, the right to self-assertion, one of Bonhoeffer's um, earlier essays and, and lectures, um, I think is, is really instructive um, for us, um, this notion of asserting the will of self over and against the other is, is completely subverted um, in Christ in that, um, uh, you know, we open ourselves up to be influenced and infiltrated by the other. Um, and in doing so, we're able to relate, we're able to become fully human and express our innate sociality. Um, when, you know, that closed circle of self is, is burst open um, by the infiltration of the other. The notion of dominion um, is really problematic when we're thinking about um, a theological anthropology of, of the place of humans in the created world. And dominion has been taken to, in some ways, justify domination over um, the planet, over the other species, over uh, resource extraction, um, colonization, rape and pillage, um, all of these at some point or other have been um, justified theologically through the notion of dominion. Um, and so in the book, I try and really pull that apart. And um, firstly, from a biblical aspect, you know, the notion of dominion in, in the Hebrew text is, is really one of um, a good king, a good leader who, um, who uh, takes action on behalf of, of um, his people. So, I mean, that's the first thing. The, the second thing is, you know, the dominion of Christ is, is a canonic um, self-sacrificial opening out um, servanthood type of dominion. So there's that. <laughs> um, but I feel like, um, you know, as Bonhoeffer does in Creation of Fall, going back to um, the creation story and, and identifying the the creation of humans as one among the other species, as this um, emergence from the earth who is created first, who brings forth um, you know, the earth and the sea, who brings forth the plants and the other species. And from that very earth herself, um, the human is created. Uh, this seems to me a much more horizontal relationality um, 
in creation rather than a, a pyramidal one where there's all these species and then suddenly the humans are at the top and, and God says, well, that was all very good. Um, God, God's not saying that, <laughs> that the humans are very good. God's talking about this interrelationship that's taken a week to create. Um, and the week there is in inverted commas, of course, mm-hmm. um, that the, the interrelationship of these um, finely tuned ecologies is very good because it expresses um, God's sociality and and therefore um, being created in the image of God in in that sociality um, is is actually what ecology is and and that is very good. Bon, so Bonhoeffer's understanding of the kingdom <laughs> of God, um, how does that relate to that and just how we're supposed to practically live? Yeah. Feminist theology sometimes replaces kingdom with kingdoms, K-I-N, dash them, um, to to kind of subvert that um, and to acknowledge that it is about this horizontal relationality. Um, Look, we're we're kind of stuck with the word kingdom because Jesus used it. So, you know, there's that. Um, (laughs) In in a devotional essay that, that Bonhoeffer wrote, Thy Kingdom Come, um, he talks about the problems of um, the problems that indicate that we don't really believe in God's kingdom of, of being, you know, too secular or too spiritual, you know, too spiritual. We think that the kingdom is sometime in the future in a different place. And if the earth burns, then it doesn't matter because we're all going to heaven or, or it's going to be replaced with a second, you know, earth or something like that. Um, and he said, well, you know, it's a bit stupid, really. Um, the other problem of, of being too secular, of um, thinking that we can, um, uh, you know, create something here by our programs or a, a, by our will, um, by our power, by sort of taking hold of the power of the world and um, uh, ensuring that, that we look after God by looking after the world. You know, this is foolish as well. I think as it relates to climate change, we have to confront um, problematic theologies of um, eschatologies, really, of of this future kingdom, um, rather than Bonhoeffer's notion of, well, here is the kingdom now among us. And um, the church community is, is... is Christ's body here on earth um, serving serving the world around us? Um, as we go about our daily business um, at, you know, the interpersonal level, at the community level and at the political level, um, we are to be uncovering God's will um, in this place um, and moving this world into a space which better reflects uh, God's intention for the world. So in terms of um, climate change, that really requires us to acknowledge that this is an existential crisis. And, you know, I I don't use those words words lightly, like this is it. Um, And if we don't all lift our game as, as churches, as people of faith, um, and across the Abrahamic faiths, especially, um, we we won't be having this discussion after 2050. Hmm. What is uh, when you say lift our game? I guess I'm looking for the practical here. Um, what, what you said you uh, you have those three levels. You work and you work in the synod for um, for the Anglican Church there in Australia. Um, 
what is the role of both the global and the local church in participating in ecoethics? Like what are some of the practical steps, all that stuff? Yeah, okay, so let's start at the, at the individual level. Um, during the pandemic, I did some research last year during the pandemic and people um, in lockdown who were no longer able to um, worship in their church communities um, increased their private prayer reading of the Bible and spending time in nature. And uh, this spending time in nature as a way of worshipping is almost like this innate kind of um, drive within us. Um, people see the awe and wonder, don't they, when they're you know, mm. by a waterfall, or by the mountains, me at the beach. Um, it's, it's something which uh, reminds us that we're created to be in relationship with the rest of the rest of the world so I would really encourage people to pursue um, worship in natural spaces you know a lot of beautiful Lutheran churches in Germany with their glass walls at the front so that you can be reminded that you're actually in a forest um, it's kind of um, typifies that so there's the you know the arcane disciplines and engaging with the natural world um, there are things we can do um, within our families and and communities to reduce our own carbon footprint. And I'm using quote marks there because this is this has been a ploy by the um, fossil fuel industry to take the, the heat off them um, and their own responsibility to, and try and place that onto individuals, where of course we don't have we don't have the power to stop global warming by individual actions. However, we do we do symbolize something when we take those actions. So when I cycle to work or when I um, only eat plant-based foods, when I refuse to use plastic, I am indicating that there is something bigger going on here that we all need to participate in. I know that me cycling or eating plants or not using plastic isn't really going to change anything but it does indicate something really important that we need to participate in and that's where our churches can be using um, you know green energy and um, offering recycling centers and things like that but really the most important thing is for churches institutions organizations to be engaged in political pressure so when we see the Pope indicating that he will uh, attend COP26 in Glasgow, um, the first time he's engaged in a United Nations event like this in his eight years of, of being Pope, um, we see him taking seriously the need for political action. I think each of us in institutional churches need to be applying pressure upwards to our organisations that they must participate in this conversation uh, because really this this year is the year to do that. Wow, that's great. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, Everybody, write letters. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Phone your bishops. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I have a Patreon for the podcast, which is a way for a listener to kind of financially support the podcast. And again, I, we, get, we have a little... Uh, group chat kind of thing, a discord set up so that we can, uh, we're in a reading group together, all those things. Um, but one of the kind of the perks is I just throw out like, Hey guys, I'm, I'm interviewing Dr. Di Rayson. Um, do you have any questions for her? 
And I have one for you. Uh, so this is from Christopher Sunby. Um, he says um, that he really enjoyed uh, your essay that you shared with him. Um, and then said, uh, near where I am in Canada, a small town, Lytton, I think it's pronounced, uh, set the record of the highest temperature ever recorded in Canada, which is uh, 49.6 Celsius. Two days later, the town burned to the ground. Over five days of our heat wave, 486 people died when the normal average is 165. It seems the climate crisis has come home. How does Dr. Rayson think Christians should respond in light of Bonhoeffer and in light of the vast Christian denial uh, that there is any real existential threat? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's so tragic that, you know, what's going on in Latin and, and all over the world in different forms. <clears throat> is only going to increase this is this is the new normal even though um you know it's not really a normal because it's going to be so um all over the place it's weather weirding and uh catastrophes are going to increase so the um uh, the heat wave which pacific northwest is experiencing um historically is a one in a hundred thousand year event and it's likely to occur every 10 10 years moving forward so we need to uh get used to this um and so churches need to be responding to to the needs that they see around them there is no doubt about that and Clearly, uh, you know, my own experience in the Australian bushfires, you know, we saw um, all sorts of people of faith stepping up to, to meet those needs. The church has a really important role in providing hope to people. Um, that's, that's our business, isn't it, as people of faith. And our hope must be coupled with our, with our actions um, but I can't see how our actions can be divorced from political action. Mm. I can't see how we can continue to provide some sort of existential hope without asking that of our political leaders. Um, beyond that, um, just some tips in talking to people about climate change. It, as with any sort of deeply held values, if, if people don't, quote unquote believe in in climate change now um nothing it, it, you know nothing's going to convince them and we know that people who hold um these very extreme views um, are not convinced by any any conversation so it's best to not even uh bother trying to convince people of climate change now what we need to do is um, pay our attention to the vast majority of people who see the fires, who see the floods, who are a little uncomfortable with species loss, you know, koalas in Australia becoming extinct by 2050. Most people are concerned to some extent and really just need some support to become politically active. Mm. And that's where churches need to be spending their energy um, we know that trying to have a fight with someone who's a climate denier really just entrenches their, their thinking in their own mind. So 
just don't even go there um, and, and also save your own sanctity. <laughs> um, sanity, <laughs> not your sanctity, your sanity. <laughs> you save your sanctity as well. Yeah. Um, but we also know that um, being politically active, engaging and, and uh, participating in, in the movement is a source of hope for people, which is why we see so many young people engaged in Extinction Rebellion um, and other forms of climate activism because... Um, being in a community of people uh, all working for something for the common good is a source of hope. And so I'd really encourage people not to give up, but, but to continue in that. Great. Thank you. And uh, second to last question here. Um, you, you've done such a good job at sort of laying out, here are some practical steps. But if we have any listeners that want to learn more, uh, so uh, websites, resources, books that you could suggest for people who are interested in theological ethics or practical ways to help in general for the climate crisis. Any suggestions? Yeah, sure. In Australia, um, there's there's a, a cluster, like a, a collective of all sorts of faith groups engaged in, in climate activism called the Australian Religious Response to Climate Change, and the acronym is ARCC, so A-R-R-C-C, um, and they have a terrific website which, um, you know, provides some background information on the climate crisis itself and, and actual kind of a toolkit of how to engage in the issue. So that's available online. That's ARC, A-R-R-C-C. Um, and they also provide um, training for faith-based groups to um, how to write letters, how to um, become active in this space. So I really love them and they've got a lot of links to other organisations. Um, there's also... Um, you know, if folks haven't read Laudato Si from um, Pope Francis, um, then, you know, that's just a beautiful um, reminder of how um, this crisis and capitalism and um, poverty are all so interlinked. Um, and, and that's a good space to go. Um, the Climate Council in Australia um, is, is not a faith-based group, but provides some really, really um, uh, accessible information on the climate crisis and and then you know each nation has its own um, um, you know groups so I, I love following the green Anglicans um, um, who kind of link up what's going on with tree planting in Africa with um, you know pilgrimages in England and and all sorts of stuff around the world so there's there's plenty of um, uh, good work going on and I think when I first started in this space I thought I was the only person concerned about this issue uh, and it's been really good to know that there's there's so much activism going on and we just need to bolster that and continue on in that that's great awesome um well I have one last question for you you alluded to it earlier um, <laughs> but it's the good old-fashioned uh desert island question so if the idea is you're trapped on a desert island and you are allowed to have one book by Bonhoeffer and one book about Bonhoeffer any sort of secondary resource um which two books are you bringing oh okay so you know I, I struggle more over this question than anything else obviously <laughs> I adore creation and fall and um that's really my my heart book with Bonhoeffer but you know I'm gonna say maybe volume 
11 or volume 12 of DBWE, I really love the 1932 period of Bonhoeffer. I really love some of the minor essays, you know. So in my book, I looked at um, Thy Kingdom Calm and The Right to Self-Assertion. You know, there's lots of really terrific hidden gems in, in the 1932 era. So I'd be probably taking those with me. Um, in terms of secondary literature like I really love some of the work that Lisa Dayhill has been doing um, just just reminding us that the point of theology is is for the world and um, to help us participate in in journeying with the world um, so Lisa Dayhill's view from the underside um, I'd I'd take that and I'd also sneak in Jenny McBride's beautiful book um, Radical Discipleship uh, liturgical politics of the gospel because she she weaves together her Bonhoeffian theology, also Martin Luther King, um, with um, her preaching through um, the liturgical year. And it's just such a rich and beautiful book. Awesome. Well, I, I haven't read either of those. I, I've met uh, Jenny, obviously. She's been on the podcast before and she is She's great. And, but, and Lisa Dayhill is also great, a former say, Lisa, um, member of the um, International Bonhoeffer Society and, of course, um, one of the um, translators of, of the works and, uh, and just a really beautiful uh, mentor in, in spirituality and bringing Bonhoeffer into our, you know, regular prayer life and, uh, and reading. So mm. highly recommend her work. Yeah, she's on the list as well, uh, on the list of all of the people that I would like to have on eventually. So she's on the list. I, I think I want to say that when I interviewed uh, Jenny McBride, she said her Desert Island book was also Lisa Dayhill. Uh, I'm pretty Is sure. that so? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So well, I, mean, I was. I mean, you know, if if I was thinking I was going to take my my reading glasses on my Desert Island, I'd take Peter Frick with me as well because I learned so much from his work on um, the philosophical influences on Bonhoeffer um, and when I when I met him and um, <laughs> had a list of a thousand questions he was so so gracious so um, I love Peter Frick's work as well yeah that's great he's on the list too I reached out to him uh, last March but as you can imagine uh, last March was a little bit busy for a person oh. running a college. <laughs> so and he, so it continues. Other time, huh? but, um, well, yeah. So if, Peter, if you're listening to this and also Lisa would love to talk to you. Um, <laughs> but anyway, this has been great. I said that, that nice stuff about your Christology chapter was amazing, but the whole book is awesome. Um, that, that just sort of stuck out to me is because I'm also like reading for, for school, for my work. And I'm like, got so much from it, but the whole book, was great. And I think you did a great job. And um, listeners, the book is called Bonhoeffer and Climate Change, Theology and Ethics for the Anthropocene. And I'm sure it's available on Amazon and uh, I believe Roman Littlefield. Yeah, Orchestra. but if you, if you go to the Roman Littlefield um, website, you can get a discount because it's quite a pricey book. Um, so um, in capital letters, use, the, use this discount code LEX30. A-U-T-H for author, 21. <laughs> Lex 30, auth 21, and you get 30% off. <laughs> oh, awesome. Well, that's great. Yeah, go go get the book. That's great. Um, but 
time. I mean, it's been great meeting you and chatting a bunch. I'm sure we'll be in touch pretty often and interact. Hopefully we can finally figure out what acting being is saying. <laughs> oh boy. Well, if anyone's got any ideas, always happy to hear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll keep going to Mike and like, come on, Mike. Uh, I don't know who Griesbach is. Please tell me, you know. <laughs> no, it's all good. It's, um, it, you know, Acton Being is an important um, kind of building block in, in Bonhoeffer's work, but um, for people who don't find it too approachable, um, you know, just just go to Creation and Fall. Yeah. <laughs> Seconded. Awesome. <laughs> Good talking to you, Corey. Thank Good you so much. You Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bonhoeffer Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review in your podcast app and it will help others find the show. If you would like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash bonhoeffer We have quite a few supporter benefits available on there, uh, so please check those out. And speaking of Patreon, special thank you to the supporters of this show, Soren Jensen, Andrew Clark Howard, Arthur Houts, Greg Harbaugh, Chris Sunby, Wilco Ollies, Chris Baker, Diego Reeve, and Kevin Dextra. And of course, as always, a special thank you to you, the listener. I love doing these and I look forward to them each month. So thank you so much for listening. <laughs>